and of ourselves. But as these are connected uh, by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of these two proceeds and gives birth to the other. So to summarize that, in order for us to truly know God and therefore enjoy Him, desire Him, we must also come to know who we are. Uh, in the book, The Gift of Being Yourself, author David Benner writes uh, that leaving the self out of Christi Christian spirituality results in a spirituality uh, that is not well-grounded in experience. It is, therefore, not well-grounded in reality. Focusing on God while failing to acknowledge or failing to know ourselves deeply, failing to know ourselves deeply may produce an external form of piety or hypocrisy. Uh, but it will always leave a gap between appearances and reality. This is dangerous to the soul of anyone. So knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself are intertwined. Knowledge of ourselves is essential. Because if we only begin to seek God, we, we will only begin to seek God when we truly see ourselves for who we are. When we begin to be displeased with the sin that is in our lives, when we recognize that there's something that is not quite right in ourselves and in this world. But we must start with knowledge of God. And of course, we, we know Biblically, we know that we're all sinful. The Bible says that. All sin and all short of glory of God. We know that in our head. Scripture teaches us to be weary uh, of our sin nature and the deceitfulness of our heart. As John read from Romans uh, 3. And we become ever more like weary and on guard against our emotions and the desires of our flesh because we fear that it will lead us away from so, we learn about him. We study him and his attributes, and we read books, and we listen to sermons and podcasts, and we, we always are seeking to grow in our knowledge of God. We engage in missional communities and DNAs, and all of that is really good. All of that is important. But it doesn't take us long living in this life to, to know that, that something is not right. We begin to notice that despite all this knowledge that we've gained, we have more knowledge accumulated about God and who he is than anyone in the entire world ever in history. But we begin to notice that despite all of that, all of the God-honoring things that we do and that we know, that our souls keep coming back to this dry place where we feel distant from God in our lives. We might shame ourselves for our, our lack of scripture reading and our weak prayer life. Uh, maybe we look to others within our community uh, to, to water the arid, dry, desert soul that we have. We look to, to others to fulfill that. Because God is so far away, so far from us, that, that we can't comprehend Him being close. We may go to conferences or camps looking for that breakthrough in our spirituality that will, will help us uh, experience what Jesus says in, in John 4, that, that we would drink from the, from the well and never go thirsty again. That's what Jesus promises all of those who come to him. We'll never go thirsty again. But our experience tells us that's not true. How often 
some ways, this is, I think, part of the human condition. Prone to wander or because. Prone to leave the God I love. And we sing that in such a beautiful line that, in that hymn because we know it to be true. I think more than any other line in that hymn, I know that to be true. I am prone to wander. However, I think that as our country continues to move more and more towards a post-Christian reality, I want to suggest that as a Western society, we're doing this wrong. We have allowed the culture to shape our thinking as a church much more uh, than I think we're comfortable admitting. But if we truly know ourselves, we truly know our, our nature, and we trust that Scripture is true, but that's not really that hard to grasp, that the culture would affect us like it has. So our passage this morning is in Mark 8. We're going to go ahead and turn to Mark 8, we're going to start in verse 34. And uh, as we read through this passage, um, it, I'm, I'm going to attempt to just give us a summary of this. Uh, bad pastoring, like sermon giving. I don't have like super clear, okay, this is point one, point two, point three. I'm just going to give us a summary and of this passage that I think is pretty familiar to us. Um, so we're going to start with verse 34. So the majority of chapter 8, uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. There's a crowd that is gathered with him, but he's kind of pulled away from that crowd and is speaking directly to his disciples about about his suffering that's coming, about what that what that's going to look like. He's already fed. Uh, he's fed four thousand at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, he's, he's warning his disciples about the hypocrisy of, of the Pharisees. Uh, but then, in verse thirty-four, uh, he begins to call the crowd to himself. Mark Mark says, "Calling the crowd." Now, some translations say that Jesus summoned the crowd. And for for Mark, this is like a literary thing where he is. Signaling, signaling to the reader that Jesus is about to say something important. He's bringing everyone in. What he's going to say next is, is crucial. And he says in verse 34, If anyone wants to follow me, wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the cross, you know, uh, is an instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, Shame. It was a symbol of, of Roman oppression for the Jews. It was reserved for the lowest social classes, and it was one of the most visible signs of Roman torture and tyranny. It was designed specifically to punish criminals and to squash rebellions. That, that is the purpose of the cross. So when I read this passage, I, I imagine that as Jesus is walking along the roads, he is discussing these things with his disciples. There are crosses around. Distantly on a hill somewhere, there is punishment and death around him. And he's easily able to draw this illustration in for, for the people that are with him. And he goes on in verse 35 to say that for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever wants to Whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. So the Greek word for life there is the word psyche. It's where we get our word for psychology. It, it can mean a 
person's physical experience, but more often it's, it's translated as someone's person, that their being, their very soul. These words refer to the core of a person's existence, the very root of who we are. And as a Western viewpoint, we tend to compartmentalize these things. We have our body and our mind and our soul, and we take care of those things separately. Uh, we work out, we exercise our bodies, we seek mental rest or, or stimulation through educate, all these things. We're taking care of these things. Our soul sometimes will get taken care of in that. But that makes sense to us. We, we divide those things up, and we have specific things we do to care for those parts of us. It's a very Western view of, of the person, of, of who we are. And most people would probably say that our mind is the most important thing about us. Our mental health, our, our physical bodies are also incredibly important. And sometimes our soul will be lumped in there. Sometimes it's totally important. But that's very different from an Eastern view of spirituality, which Christianity is. Christianity is very Eastern. And an Eastern view of spirituality is all-encompassing. They're, they're intertwined. Our body, our soul, and our mind are all connected. You don't serve one without the other. And so, what Jesus is getting at is that the soul of a person, the life of a person, is the most important thing about and that, and that is what his followers would have understood this to be. So as followers of Jesus, we are to live a, a life denying ourselves, humbling ourselves, taking up our cross, the object of our humiliation, and follow Jesus. Why? Because as verse 35 says, if you attempt to preserve your own life on your own, you will lose it. You can't do it. You cannot preserve yourself. But if by God's grace, you allow yourself to be lost in the overwhelming love of Jesus and the gospel, you will be saved. Will you physically die? Probably not in America. It's possible. You, you could experience physical death for your faith, but, but it, as Jesus is saying, it is worth it. You, your life will be found in If your life is found in him, you will not lose your soul. This verse has been used to justify all kinds of arguments. Advocating that people should stay in abusive relationships or live in silent suffering uh, because we're called to deny ourselves. I think that's why it's really important for us to have a, a holistic view of Scripture. We have, to, we have to look at all of Scripture when we're examining or making our viewpoints about what this is saying. Because as much as Scripture calls us to be servants of all and to suffer with joy, it also calls us to be agents of justice in the world. And so what I'm not saying is, is advocating for, for these things. Uh, but that's an entirely different sermon. What Jesus is calling us to do is to not be proud. And, and we've heard that in the, in the sermons from 1 Peter the past few weeks, is that humility is crucial to our faith. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Like that, that is mind-blowing to 
much grace to come. So Jesus is calling us to operate from a place of humility. And it's like he already knows the inward dialogue, the inward like protest that is going on with the people that are following him. They scream, this is impossible. This can't be done. And it's not fair. You don't know what that person's done to you. You don't, you don't know how I've already poured myself out with you. And you're calling me to continue in this life. That's not fair. But it's like Jesus knows that. So he continues. He says, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? And what can anyone gain in exchange for his life? So again, that, that Greek word there, psyche, life, or soul, is seen in this verse, verse 36. And so it could be accurate to read it this way. What does it benefit someone to gain the world and lose his life slash soul? What can anyone exchange for their life or soul? And for me, most of my growing up, I heard this verse in terms of evangelism. I heard this verse as a verse of the same. When you're, when you're speaking to the lost, you're calling them to say, what, what, you're just pursuing the things of this world. What value or worth is that if you, if, if you lose your soul to hell? That's how that was taught to me growing up. That is not how Jesus is using this verse. This, that's not what he's saying. Because, again, who is he talking to? It's the people that are following him. His disciples. These, these people are already following Jesus. And still he gives this, this, this rhetorical question. What does it benefit you to gain the whole world to lose your soul? How, how can we do that? How can we gain the world and lose our soul? Well, we, we can and we do it all the time. I can list hundreds of examples of pastors missionaries, ministry leaders, or, or just people um, that have been engaged in church that have resigned or left due to burnout or moral failure. It's easy for us to see how we can let ourselves engage, uh, if we let ourselves engage in the world as, as a lost person, um, that we might lose ourselves. But that's really easy, I think, for believers to wrap our heads around. But what is less obvious are those uh, who have emptied themselves for the sake of others. Who have given their lives to a ministry, engaged in the work of ministry professionally or just, I guess, for, as a lay person, like a, a non professional ministry. That happens all the time when we don't regularly return to the source of our life. We give ourselves to prayer meetings and, and school ministries and pastoring and all these things, but if we're not returning to the source of our life, we will lose ourselves to this objectively good thing that we do. Mindy Calgary is an operator of a ministry called Soul Care. She said this, that we over-celebrate sacrifice beyond what God has called us into. Of all the costs that Jesus calls us to count, and there are many costs, it was never in his heart or mind that one of those costs would be an ever-diminishing interior life with him. When Jesus said that he came that we might have abundant life and have it 
as some far off distant thing. That would be completed when he returns and all the suffering goes away. But he meant it here and now. He meant it for you, follower of Jesus, that your life would be filled with abundance. Not possession. Not the negative climate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sow a seed and receive back in, in earthly possession. But have a life that is full of him. Jesus understood that our soul, as our soul goes, so goes our life. He understood it because he created us to be that way. And as Western believers, it's hard for us to, because we, we separate those things, compartmentalize that. But as our soul goes, so goes our life. It wouldn't be a stretch biblically to say that the entirety of Jesus' ministry could be summed up in saying that his teaching was for us to find our soul's rest in him. That's all he ever did. This is what it looks like. This is how you can do this. So whether you like it or not, or whether you're aware of it or not, your soul's well-being is driving everything that matters to you. Everything that you do is driven by your soul's desire. And it's easy for us to lay blame when we're not well. It's easy for us to lay blame on the things around us, the, the pressure points in our life. But we all have to take ownership of the intimacy that we have with God. To some capacity. Which I promise you can still be experienced in deep and vibrant ways. In the midst of soon pain. Surrounded by failure. Surrounded by chaos. You can still experience this abundant life in Jesus. None of our external circumstances have a direct ability to thwart the real-time, in-the-moment sense of connection with God. And it's so easy for us to blame it on, on our external circumstances. I'm so busy, I can't. I don't have time for this. I do not have time to rest with my Savior. And so if you're like me and you hear things like this, this feels very good. I get that. Like I, I, I get that I should be caring for my soul. I get that, that I should be returning regularly to the, to the wellspring of life. I get that. But, but how do I do that? How do I do that? What does this look like? What should I do? And uh, I have three things that are just very practical.
slowing your mind down enough to where you can write out your thoughts. Considering our days as the psalm would say. And the psalms are a great example of this, of a soul crying out authentically and genuinely to their God. Putting it into words. And, and people don't have to read your words like we read David's. But having a space, a non-judgmental place, where you can write down and reflect your life. We do not grow beyond our capacity to reflect, to consider our life. It's crucial. And this isn't some nice thing uh, that, that we do when we have the time, like, Teenage-year-old writing out their, their thoughts about that's that's very serious. Well, sorry, uh, just, but you know, you get what I'm saying. Just in the privacy of our room, just writing down you know the, the gooey thoughts that I have. But but truly meeting with the Lord in a place of stillness and silence. Second is person, and this is an invitation to connection. Care for our souls through reflection, but we also care for our souls in connection. And I think the Crossing Church gets this well, really well. We orient all that we do around connection and relationship. It's essential for the soul to be well, to be connected with people. People can be people that we can be completely honest with in the good, bad, and the ugly. I want you to, as I'm sharing these things, to imagine for yourself who these people are in your life. Do you have somebody like this about what, I, what I'm going to describe? A person who is honest with you in the good, the bad, and the ugly, that you can be honest with. You can express your doubts and your worries. People who are with us and who are for us no matter what. like Nathan who came to David in the midst of his sin and called him to repent in a, in, in a loving way because he knew that David was not living living in his gospel identity he was not living as a man who knows and has been loved by the creator of the universe this is what the Old Testament would call said. Hebrew word is really difficult to translate. But the best that we have been able to come up with in English is steadfast, never-ending love, loving kindness, mercy, faithful love, and loyal kindness. All of those kind of capture that idea of the seven. In the book, The Other Half of the Church, uh, Jim Wilder, a expert in neuroscience, um, says this. Okay, stick with me for a second. Attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. It's not an emotion, although we feel it strongly. And attachment runs much deeper in the brain, below willful control. Attachment is the best word scientists could, come, could find for what glues people together and little children to their parents. It produces an enduring care for the well-being of another. Attachment 
is a life-giving forever body with no mechanisms in the brain to unglue us. If God has an enduring love for us that brings us good, the only force in the human brain that can understand such lasting kindness and care is the brain's attachment system. Okay, so if I lost you in that, just know this, that God has created you for connection with others and with Him. All the way down to the way that your brain functions, God has made you this way. And he goes on in this book to explain that the Western church is not set up for this kind of connection. It's not set up for this way of relational living because this kind of living is slow and it's messy. It is so much easier to have a Bible study and to tell people what they need to know than to get into the weeds of people's lives. It's so much easier to do that. As a church, though, we are striving to create this kind of ascended relationship. But we have to unlearn some things. We have to stop seeing each other as a burden to our daily lives. We must be willing to be humble and to deny ourselves. We need this kind of relationship in our life that we can depend on. Or we can be authentic. People that will speak life to us, speak the gospel to us, and encourage us, but not be afraid to confront us. That is love. And we need these kind of friends. You can pay for that kind of thing. You can pay for those kind of relationships if you don't have them through coaching or counseling. But this is possible in everyday relationships. In fact, that, that's, that's how God intended for it to be. And the gospel makes this possible. The spirit living inside of you, if you are a believer, makes it possible for you to walk alongside people to carry burdens, to, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him alongside a, a loving community. And that's not saying that we won't get hurt. To love people, and just in its nature, is to be vulnerable enough to be hurt. And because we're sinful, it happens. But if we're living in this gospel identity, possible for us to be in a relationship with one another, where these kind of things can be mended and restored. Are we humble enough to do that? So we, we can care for our soul through reflection, through connection, and the other one is, uh, the last thing is, is through a plan. It's an invitation to intentionality. There's, a, there's an illustration that, uh, that we've used uh, just for the way we structure our church called trellis and the vine. The trellis, if you're into gardening, whatever, is, is, is a non-living entity that structures around a plant that provides life and stability for something that's growing. And each of us needs trellis-type things in our life that can help us and grow us. And that's going to look different for each of us. 
set us up for deep spiritual care. And this, this might be a really good thing to discuss in, in an MC gathering. What are, what are some ways that we can establish more consistent soul care type things in our own lives? How do we do this? I can, this is a really like small example, but I can give you an example from my, from my own life. If, I, if I'm going to continually return to the source of life,
He lost his life so that we might live. And it's only in him that our souls are able to find Christ. So I, I want to close reading, I think, the passage that John read uh, from Titus, from, from Romans 11. Okay. Oh, the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him, through him, to him, all to him the glory forever. You know, uh, Jesse was.